0: Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you guys are doing well. We're going we're gonna to jump right in this morning because we have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, Nathan is trying to attempt it, uh, covering two chapters of Genesis in one morning. <laughs> good luck. Anyway, so you guys will be in time just for the Super Bowl tonight. So anyway... Uh, and, and the quote that I want to share with you right off the bat is fitting for this. Henry Nouwen said that waiting is a period of learning. The longer we wait, the more we hear about Him for whom we are waiting. Waiting is a period of learning. Waiting is a period of learning. Uh, Romans eight twenty four. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Romans eight twenty four, also known as the Message. Uh, but I, I felt it was fitting for the topic today. Uh, he says this. He says, waiting does not diminish any, any us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. A little less emphasis on the large part, right? So, um, but it is, it's impressive because I think what happens with waiting, well, this is my experience with waiting. Waiting frustrates me. Waiting causes me to overthink. Waiting makes me wonder if what God said was true or if he meant what he said, whatever it is, right? And so, so waiting becomes a challenge, uh, and yet waiting is designed to build us. This is something that I want you to take away from today, If actually if you hear nothing else from the message, but that patience and waiting, which I hold together they are implicit in faith. You will not travel this life of faith without growing in patience. You will not travel this life of faith without waiting. And I mean quite profoundly waiting. You will look at life and wonder if God is around. You will... Sorry about that. Didn't expect that one either. Anyway, you will wonder where God is at times. It is just a part of life. And yet, he is teaching you. Um, he is always growing us, church. Always growing us. And if I was to pick, your, pick anybody uh, as an example of what that waiting looks like, it would be Abram. And if I was to pick anybody who tries to push God's waiting along or push God's plan along and not wait, it would be Abram, right? Unless it would be my own life story. But uh, this is, this is quite, quite an important thing. So, so we're going to jump right into this, and I want you to be thinking through your life and the fact that uh, patience and waiting is implicit in faith. So we just came off of this Melchizedek moment with Abram. And it's quite powerful what happens because Abram chooses God's plan and God's way over and against uh, some mighty king's plan. He rejects the king of Sodom's offer, the king of Sodom's concept, and he just simply accepts God. And inside of that belief, inside of that trust in God, God rewards Abram immediately. And it's quite an impressive thing because he declares this great covenant with Abram and he makes this promise and it just becomes a beautiful journey that Abram begins to walk. So Genesis chapter 15 uh, starts this way. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying... uh, Many times in the Bible, that phrase, after these things, can mean an unbelievable amount of time, an indeterminate amount of time, maybe. Uh, But there are many times where it means immediately following something okay? And this seems to be one of those moments. Uh, It seems to be that what is being said here is right after this trusting in God, right after this acceptance of God's plan over and against the king of Sodom or maybe a worldly choice, we hear this. Abram in a vision, God meets Abram in a vision and he says, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. I am a shield for you. Your reward will be very great. I love that concept of of being a shield. It's a common metaphor uh, inside of the scripture for for divine protection. We see it in Psalm 3, 4. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. Like this protection, the shield that he does. We go on in Psalm 18, verse 3. It says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. God's continuing to protect and continuing to rescue. In 18 verse 31, it says, for who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? And finally, in Psalm 18, 36, it says, you enlarge my steps under me and my feet have not slipped. Why? Because God is our shield. God is our protector. We choose his way. And everything goes, uh, goes well. We might not see it. We might not agree with it going well, but it goes well. So he says, after these things, immediately following, God is appearing to Abram and he says, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, and right here accounts for the first recorded moment when Abram talks to God. We've not seen it up to this point, right? So Abram says, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. The first time that Abram is recorded talking to God, he's asking him a question. It's like, what are you doing, Lord? What will you give me? Why is it that we see this in him asking about a child or being childless? Because remember, this isn't the first time Abram has heard from God about a promise. This isn't the first time that God has told Abram that he is going to be uh, prolific in this world and that he will have descendants and those descendants will live a long time and they they will be a blessing to the world. We actually saw that back in Genesis chapter 12 verse 7. Here's what that says. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So, Abram is asking a legitimate question. He knows God is for him. He knows that he can trust him. And yet, he's going, what's the deal? How is it going to come about? How many of you would say, in your waiting, that's one of your big questions. How is it going to come about? Yeah. So, there is nothing wrong with asking the how. There's nothing wrong with asking questions, as a matter of fact, because God, who rewards Abram in just a second, actually says a, a line, or the, a line is recorded in the Bible here in a second, that is uh, basically the the hinge of all of our salvation, okay? Uh, God is not intimidated by Abram's questions. He's not put off by them. He doesn't think he lacks faith because he's asking the questions. He simply responds to Abram, okay? So, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, you remember that thing you said to me, Lord? One born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. This is an important phrase here, from your own body, and it kind of uh, goes to show how uh, the ancient mind thought childbearing worked, and I'll get into that in just a second. He says, Come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you are able to count them, and he said to him, so shall your descendants be. If you're able to count this, that's, that's the deal. Now, how many of you like those kinds of promises? Where God goes, I'm going to give you more than you can imagine. You guys up for that? Awesome. He did give you more than you can imagine if you'll trust him for eternity. If you'll trust him for his kingdom to come. He has given us more than we can fathom. But we're in the waiting period, right? Okay, so he goes on and he says, it will come from your own body and go out and count the stars. If you can count them, that's how many descendants you're going to have. Verse six is this huge and beautiful line. He says, Then he, Abram, believed in the Lord, not believed in him as though he had never known him before. Then he believed in the Lord, believed his promise, believed his word. And God reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is our message. This is our life, church. We are a people who have righteousness reckoned to us for what reason? Because we believe Yahweh God. That is why we have righteousness. We do not have righteousness because we understand everything fully. Praise the Lord. We do not have righteousness because we get all of the details correct in walking it out. Amen? We don't. Not one of us here ever has. But we can believe God and we can trust him and and we can gain that righteousness or we can be granted that righteousness because we are saved by grace through faith, through trusting God. So Abraham is is launching this whole beautiful faith journey out for us. He's the one uh, that we get these ideas from. As a matter of fact, uh, this is where Paul will die, right? This is how Paul will lay down his life, believing that promise. You believe the Lord, and he reckons it to you as righteousness. Verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Second thing Abram is saying to God is yet another question. How many of you think that you bug God with your questions? How many of you stop asking questions because you think God's got more important things to do? Listen, I've heard you say it, right? I've heard people like, ah, don't worry about it. My life's in shambles. It's kind of chaos. God's got more important things. You know he's bigger than that, right? right? Abram asks two questions and God still sees this man as a man of faith. It is not lacking faith to seek clarity. It is not lacking faith to ask questions of God. It would be lacking faith if you are questioning God, right? It is lacking faith when you go, I don't believe you can do anything. Prove it to me. Right? This is an entirely different matter. This is something I've told you before I do with my kids. I tell my girls they're able to ask me any question they want. They can ask me any question they want, but they are not allowed to question me. They are not allowed to put me on trial. Okay? They can say, Dad, I don't understand. I need clarification. I need your help. That's a love relationship versus putting somebody, you know, to the, to the wall and making them defend themselves. This is not what we do with God. Verse 9, So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, cut them in two, and laid each half opposite of each other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Okay, let's just change subjects. Now, when the sun was going down, that's just weird, isn't it? Right? You just talked about slaughtering animals, setting them apart, and you just moved on. Watch what happens. This is really important. It says, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. So this idea of terror and great darkness is a... a, um, a common expression or a common feeling that people had when when God would appear or when the angel of the Lord would show up. And the the common response is, do not be afraid, right? I can guarantee you, if God showed up like this for you, whether it's in a dream or physically, you'd probably be scared, right? So he says, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain, I love that, that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Okay, that is weird as crap. Okay, And here's why. You've just chosen God over the king of Sodom. You've just walked out of this situation, and immediately afterward, God is praising you. God is saying, you're the dude. And then he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Cut some animals in half. Don't cut the birds. I don't know why. Just don't cut the birds, right? Cut the animals in half. Now set that there and fall asleep. Now when he falls asleep, he tells him, here's this really cool dream. Your people are going into slavery. Abram's going, time out, Lord. I asked about children. I don't want, what are you talking about? I don't need these details. I don't know why you're scaring the crap out of me, Lord. Right? I asked for a baby. I asked for a son. I don't want Eleazar of Damascus being my heir. I want a child. And what do you promise me? 400 years in captivity. How many of you are good when God wakes you up like that? that doesn't make any sense, right? It does not make sense. So you're going, okay, this story's really jacked up and so are most of the stories, right? So, he's in this dream, he's in this place, and he has this experience, and God says, you're going to be here for 400 years. Brief little goofy side note. When it comes to biblical interpretation, and the people who are obsessed with ideas about the Bible being translated absolutely literally, or that every word has to be directly inspired by God, you have deep problems with this phrase right here. And here's why you have deep problems. The the time actually in captivity was known to be 430 years, right? 430 years. Why is it that when God speaks for himself, he rounds the number? Why? You'd think if anybody knew the daggone number, it'd be Yahweh, right? He goes, listen, 400 years. Later, it's 430 years. Why is this the case? It doesn't matter. What matters is there is going to be this prolonged captivity, and Yahweh is the one going to do it. We have to really wrestle with these things, and we have to think like ancient Near Easterners if we're ever going to understand what the Bible is saying. This is a quote from God. This is not just Moses' rendering of something, right? So this is a quote from God. You'll be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Good Lord, I just want a kid. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. What does this have to do with my baby, Lord? What is the Amorite have to do with anything? Don't worry about it. God's got a plan. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven And a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants, I have given this land... From the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephium, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, the Jebusite, and some Cadbury egg, I think. Anyway, so all all that is happening, right? But here is where this is such a beautiful thing. God asks Abram to trust him, and then God gives him an absurd level of detail. And all of a sudden, Abram's going into overthink mode, I think. He's going, okay, hold on, I need a baby, I need an heir, I don't want this Eliezer of Damascus, this is what I've asked about, you promised me descendants, I'm not sure what's going to happen, and then when you do clarify in the question, you give me all this detail that really doesn't even have much to do with my son, or what's going to happen, you say, I'm going to give you kids, but you're going to be locked away for 400 years. Smile, don't worry, you'll die at a good old age. Thanks, Lord, I'm already feeling old enough as it is, right? But I've got you. And then these weird animal things come back, and God, look at this, it's so funny, it does not say, and what appeared to Abraham to be, something like a smoking oven and a flaming torch. It literally. This is different than a lot of renderings in the New Testament. It says there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch. So, like this thing shows up. Now, this makes us believe, and scholars argue this, but if this makes us believe that that this is all happening within Abram's dream, his vision. Right. Nonetheless. We have dead animals to each side, and we have a smoking oven and a flaming torch. When you stop and think about God, do you think of a smoking oven? I mean, seriously, this is just weird to me. Why am I pointing this out? Because I want you to know the Bible's weird. I want you to know the Bible's weird. And some of you have never read these stories. You've never read these stories. It's just strange. Here is what this beautiful strangeness actually is about. It was a common practice in the ancient Near East to have this kind of strange uh, sacrifice that established a covenant. Okay, this was, um, this, was a, this was a normal, I suppose you would say, a normal way of doing it. Animals are cut in half and the halves are separated and the most common expression of making a covenant in the Old Testament the, co- the most common uh, common word in Hebrew is karath, which means to cut. This is because covenants usually involved literally cutting animals. The type of covenant practice was common in the ancient Near East. You can look at all these different uh, tribes or people, and they all did these things. Ordinarily, those who entered into a covenant would walk through the halves of the carcasses, and, and they would... Um, They would be walking through this to indicate this, that they would end up like the dead animals if they didn't agree or didn't fulfill the stipulations. Does that make sense, right? So this is the weirdness of the world. They cut these animals in half. you got to walk through it, and by walking through it, you're saying, my word is my bond, and if not, let this be done to me. This is actually very common in the sacrificial system. So the fate of the sacrificial animals would be applied to the participants. In this case, only Yahweh walks through. Now that's weird. That's weird. Because a covenant in in an ancient world really is an agreement or an enactment between two parties. Right? In which one promises under an oath to perform or refrain from certain actions uh, that were stipulated in advance. Okay? This is how this works. And this is promised children and all this stuff. This is this covenant that is happening, but only Yahweh passes through. Why is that significant? And why should you rest your hat on this? And why should you believe God and allow that to be reckoned as righteousness? Because everything in our salvation, everything in our life, everything in our relationship with God is actually contingent upon God's faithfulness and not your own. This is important. That does not mean wing it and do nothing. That does not mean you get to ignore the commands and the call of God. That doesn't mean that. It does mean that when you are in obedience to God, you are living out a rightful expression of worship to Yahweh. Remember what I did with the call to worship this morning. It was this faith component of Abel. And what was Abel's faith component? He gave to God that which was first and best. He offered his worship to Yahweh. And that faith was credited to him as righteousness, just the same way as this. Our lives lived in sacrifice and obedience are about obedience or are about faith and trusting God and worshiping him. That's what we obey for. We do not obey so that we can keep one half of the covenant. This is really weird okay God is the one who walks through and says I will be faithful and the rest of the Bible proves this out because every time Israel walked away God went and rescued he rescued his one sheep that left the 99 he's the one who found his lost coin he's the one who travels after the one that is unwanted and despised and thrown out he is the one who cares God is the faithful one. And it is an amazing thing to say, if I don't follow this, may this be done to me. God's promise is so real that he will never fall short of it. He will never falter in this promise. In this promise so although it is a very strange chapter and some weird stuff and Abram's probably asking more questions in his head than he voices out to God like what does this have to do with my baby boy God is setting up a promise and a covenant with Abram that relies or rests upon God's shoulders this is true for you and for me and if we will put our trust in Jesus in what he did on a cross We will be saved. That's it. We will be saved. You can trust him. I know. We look at it and we go, Nathan, it just seems too easy. It seems like there's more to it. What What about all the commands in the Bible? What about all the commands in the Bible? What are they again? Rightful expressions of worship. That's what you do. That's how you honor God. Okay? So we continue on. He gives this promise. Now we get to zoom in in this strange thing. And we're going to get to faith and we're going to get to patience and we're going to get to waiting and we're going to get to our natural state. Verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. There is significance in this writing. She is an Egyptian. right? There is the significance of this this uh, tension between Egypt and between Israel, okay? And part of this plays out in this story. Verse 2, so Sarah said to Abram, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Do you notice what she says here? The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Does that line sound familiar to you at all? Where does it sound familiar from? What? From the Garden of Eden. When who listened to who? When Adam listened to the voice of his wife. Right? There is this idea that not, there is not an idea here that women suck. Okay? Please, don't uh, don't do what people do with this and miss the whole point of things. Uh, The idea here is that there was an event that happened and Abram listened to the voice of his wife, Adam listened to the voice of Eve, and they did exactly what God said, or they they did something that God had not commanded them to do. In Eve's case, directly told her not to do, right? Um, So first we have this... uh, We have this responsibility thing, right? Uh, Like Eve, Sarah now shifts the blame. And like Adam, Abram shrugs off his responsibility. Abram alone has the judicial authority to effect a change and up to now has not acted to protect their marriage. What has Abram done so far? He constantly is lying about Sarah and putting her in risky situations, right? This has happened over and over, okay? So... We have to see this connection between Adam and Eve. We have to see what's going on here. We have to realize that there is a test of faith that is here, that is before them. So, Sarah Abram's wife has borne no children. She had an Egyptian handmaid, or Egyptian maid, that was Hagar. Sarah said to Abram, now behold, the Lord has prevented me. In the ancient Near East, barrenness was always considered a female problem due to the belief that the man deposited a seedling child into the woman. Not a seedling, but a seedling child into the woman where it would grow like a plant. Failure to grow the child was thus viewed as divine judgment against the woman and was therefore viewed as barrenness. You can put a seed in barren land, in land that is not fertile or rich in its soil and it won't grow, okay? And so this is the ancient Near Eastern idea. Sarai considers God to be the cause of this barrenness. If she knew of Yahweh's promise to Abram, um, and this is just conjecture, she may have believed that the promise was only about Abram becoming a father, where whether it was by her or not. That's a debatable idea. But nonetheless, this idea of barrenness, she believes God is the one doing this, okay? How many of you, when things are not happening your way, blame God? How many of you are lying right now? Come on, right? Like, this is true. Things go wrong, and we go, God, why are you doing this to me? Woe is me, right? Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. You know what that means. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram and and his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she was conceived, that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. What does it mean for her to be despised in her sight? Um, It was something about... um, Hagar thought that she had gained a greater status in Abram's household. Okay? Um, It's not that she had no use for the woman, it's just that there was a reordering of things. So the way it seems to have worked in the ancient Near East is you have a wife, she holds, she's the She's the mistress, she holds the top place, and then there were maidens and concubines and other things, and they actually took in lower, they took lower ranks inside of the household, even if they were for childbearing, they took lower ranks, and some were even treated like slaves. Right? This, is, this is how this was working. But Hagar, um, at least in Sarah's mind, feels like, uh, Sarah feels like Hagar is putting herself above, okay? So he went into Hagar and she conceived and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarah, I said to Abram, may the wrong done me by, uh, be upon you, may the wrong done me be upon you. The word wrong here is chemos, uh, and it's, um, it's related to himos Elsewhere describes deceit, general disregard for law, or even human life. In this instance, it seems that it is, um, is just simply an injustice, right? So may the wrong, injustice done me, be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Okay, so let's just look at some dynamics here. What was the promise given to Abram? That he would have a son. Who is that son going to be? It's not going to be Eleazar of Damascus or it's not going to be from that line. It's going to be from his own body, right? It's going to be this. How many descendants is Abram going to have? Many as the stars in heaven, he's going to have some prolific idea, which is a multi-generational promise. But nonetheless, it's this amazing thing. Sarah is already barren, and everybody knows it, okay? And God doesn't doesn't inform him on how this is going to take place. Nothing is explicitly told to him. So this idea is happening. So, Sarai concocts an idea. So we're going to eat this fruit, and I'm going to give some to my husband right? She's going to concoct this idea and she's going to make this thing work. And so she does what makes a lot of sense. She does. And very common, according to the ancient East. So she does this thing and then all of a sudden something bad happens. There is tension. There's jealousy. There's fighting. There's backbiting. Okay, so principle number one. When you are living by faith, and patience and waiting are implicit in faith, and you rush that, what are the common results? The first one is that there are relationship dynamics that you can't control now. You created the problem. You're the one who created the problem. I'm the one who created the problem. We create the problem when we do what? When we don't trust by faith in the promise of God, and we try to rush it, okay? So this despising, this frustration, it's, it's, it's man-made. We created this, or Abram and Sarah created this. So the same thing happened in Genesis. Uh, Adam and Eve create this. Adam, what have you done? The woman you gave me. Eve, what have you done? The devil made me do it, right? It's always this interrelated relationship issue, right? We've got all kinds of problems. So Sarai says to Abram, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly and she fled from her presence. Second problem that happens when we don't have patience and we don't wait according to true faith is that all of a sudden our anger and our frustration takes over and we do things rashly. We do things that hurt other people, right? And so this is exactly what is happening with Sarai. She treats her harshly. She fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her uh, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by a spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? I love the garden language again here. It's like, where, what are you doing? What's happening out here? As if God doesn't know. And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. This is a fascinating piece of this too. When we rush God's plan and we hurt other people, it is often the case that we still have to maintain what we did, we have to to keep what we've done, and we put people in subjection to one another. I don't know if this is making sense to you, but when you rush your faith journey and when you treat people poorly or whatever, somebody still has to deal with that. Somebody still has to deal with it. And sadly, God doesn't just swoop in and go, it wasn't your fault, darling. I'll make it good for you and everything will be okay. He doesn't. He literally says, go back and submit. That's hard. That's hard. So somebody else is required to be put in this place, okay? And honestly, she was put in this place. It's not like she had much of a choice in this The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Okay, look at the blessing, though, that happens to, in many ways, the victim. The person who had no place. Does God just send them back to submit? No. He blesses her. He blesses her and tells her, it's going to be okay. Your descendants are going to be many. That's a big promise in this time, okay? Verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction, okay? God is actually a compassionate God, even over those who are put in these wrong places. Now, what comes next is just downright weird and hilarious, right? Because he goes on about this son. You would think he would say, I'm going to give you plenty of descendants. I heeded your affliction. I want you to know your son's going to be the dude. He's going to be the man. Instead, he goes, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man, right? Right? Which is a phrase that I'd like to call a lot of people. But anyway, so he, is a, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all of his brothers. Now, I'm just going to give you an opinion. This is sheerly an opinion here. What I think, it, and it plays into this faith component and trusting God and being patient and waiting, but rushing it, Okay? I think when we track the story down and we realize Ishmael's probably 8 or 13 years old, somewhere around there by the time Isaac is born, he at least knows of what the promise was made to Abram. And he also seems to know, because, well, his mom is the one that was kind of taken advantage of, he probably knows how they tried to make the promise work. Okay? Okay? It is my theory, it is my opinion that the reason why Ishmael is a wild donkey of a man or against everyone or his hand is going to be against him and and they will live at odds and he'll live in the east of his brothers is because when when you put people into these circumstances, there are dynamics that are created that never go away. This child thinks he should be the one of promise. You're the one who screwed up. Why am I paying the cost for it? Right? You're the one who did all this mess. And now I've got to do what? I've got to live out here. I've got to look at Isaac being treated all special and everything like this. I think, it's just an opinion, I think that this makes sense of why this man is who he is. Because the, the interpersonal relationships that get all muddied and twisted inside of this rushing God's promise create problems. This happens a lot of times, and I know this is a touchy subject for people, but this happens a lot of times with mixed families. There's a lot of, t- and I, listen, I have, no, I have no judgment here. I understand how life works, I understand circumstances, I understand burdens, all of those things. But there are many times where uh, the relationships within families are really broken, and they're really broken because the way that relationship came about was just not healthy was just not right. It wasn't trusting God. It wasn't resting in his promises, okay? We've all done this. We've all seen these problems. We've all created half of them, right? But I'm just saying, we see this dynamic in the world, and that seems to be what's happening with Ishmael. Verse 13, let's go on, and I'll sum all of this up and make sense of it. Verse 13, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, and here's what she calls God. You are a God who sees when you're the victim of somebody trying to rush their faith, when you're a victim of somebody trying to take God's promises into their own hands, and notice how this works. (laughs) The religious people are the one trying to take it into their own hands, and they end up hurting other people. When you are the one who is afflicted in this, and it happens all the dang time today, remember that God is still a God who sees. God is a God who is watching, who is caring, who is loving. So she recognizes this, you are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained, have I even remained here, uh, alive here, after seeing him? She's astounded that she saw God and lived, or saw an aspect of God, something like this. Verse 14. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Behold, it was between Kadesh and Beret. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Here's the story as it flows from these two chapters. Abram chooses God right out of the gate, and it's a beautiful thing. And as a reward for choosing God and not the king of Sodom and doing things his way or being under his thumb, God rewards him. He gives him a promise, don't fear, I am a shield for you. Your reward shall be very great. He immediately goes to what is my reward? Where are my descendants? Where is my house going? He says, I promise to give you a son from you. You will have a son. He makes a covenant with Abram that is unbelievable, and the covenant does not include Abram's action. It is God walking through the middle of this promise, saying, I will do what I will do. And here's what's beautiful about a church. When you look back on the past, God did everything that he said he would do. What is God? He is a faithful God. He is faithful, right? So he makes this problem to Abram, and everything seems right. But then time passes. And time passes, and Abram's wondering, and Sarah's getting older, and all of this stuff is becoming weighty. And all of you have been there, where God seemed to give you a promise, but time passed, and you're confused about what he's doing. And God is still keeping his promise. He signed on the dotted line. He's the one who committed to faithfulness. He's the one who walked through the middle of the covenant promise. He's the one who will will accomplish what needs to be done. But time passes and we begin to doubt and we struggle. And what do we do? We take things into our own hands because that's what we're good at. Because we don't like to wait. We don't like to be patient. We don't like to trust that God will be good. We don't like it. And so we rush it in a thousand ways. We rush it in our relationships with people. We ru- rush it in our, uh, in our spiritual journeys. We think we're owed something we're not. We, we want to we push, 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 push. And God goes, calm down and trust me. Just trust me. I've spent the past year and a half, almost two years now, uh, jumping into... Uh, most fascinating uh, exercise of life. I'm not getting emotional about that right now. A most fascinating exercise of life, which is jujitsu. If I cry about that, it's because I hurt all the time. Anyway, but I entered into this journey. But what I, am, what I am emotional about is what it teaches me and what it teaches me in a way that I don't think anything else ever has. You do not just get there in this sport. You can't. You will slowly die and be beaten a thousand times in life. You will be wounded. You will be afflicted. And then years later, you'll go, I finally learned something. I'm finally better than I was yesterday. I'm finally getting somewhere with this. This is the faith journey that we're in. This is the faith journey. We are supposed to be walking this. Back to the Henry now Nowen quote. Waiting is a period of learning. The longer we wait, the more we hear about him for whom we are waiting. In our time of waiting, what we ought to do instead of rushing it is we should abide in the shadow of God and we should listen to him and remember his promises and re- remember his faithfulness. Watch what he has done in the past and know that if he did it in the past, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He'll do it for us today. Amen? But that's hard, isn't it? That's hard. I don't like waiting. We live in instant gratification culture. We want fast food Christianity. We want to walk up to the drive through God, give me this, and he fulfills his duty. And then you move on and forget him. Waiting and patience are implicit in faith just so that you won't forget him. You are made to suffer, and you are made to walk a hard journey, so that there is not one day of your life that you can't that you wake up and go, eh, "Who cares about God?" Instead, even if you wake up and go, "God, where are you?" You've remembered Him, and you might think that that's wrong or evil or or uh, mean. I don't know, cosmic bully kind of stuff. It's not. He's the one who knows what is best for every one of us. And so, when we're struggling and when we're yearning and when we're hurting, what do we do? Well, I'll tell you what I do. I find a lot of things to medicate it. I find a lot of things to patch it up. Find find an apple that looks good for eating and just go that route instead of trusting God. Find some way that you can force God's promise and get it to come quicker. It's medication. This is what we're doing. We want it rushed. We don't want to feel this pain. But instead, what we ought to do, and what I'm learning a terribly hard way, Is to sit back and wait and realize that in the waiting, waiting is not diminishing me. Waiting is not breaking me. Waiting is hurting me. Waiting is tiring to me. But waiting is not diminishing me. It is instead Exactly what Eugene Peterson said, which is an opportunity to enlarge, to grow, just as a pregnant woman is not, she's not diminished in her pregnancy. Abram had an opportunity, Sarai had an opportunity, and they didn't do it. But right after God makes this covenant promise in faithfulness, ten years later and they jack it up, God still remains faithful and we're going to see that when we roll into the next chapter. And we're going to see that God doesn't drop his side of the promise. But sometimes it takes time. So I want, you to, I want you to end, or I want to end today with you knowing this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is according to the Bible. The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. But here, listen. The assurance of things hoped for. But Romans 8.24, in an actual Bible, says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? There is waiting and patience implicit in faith, or it is not faith. And waiting and patience make you suffer, and they make you suffer a long time. But if you try to circumvent the suffering, if you try to medicate yourself through the suffering, and listen to me really quickly, because this is one big issue in our world today. If you try to escape the suffering by running and running and running and running, you are simply delaying time with God. You can medicate yourself a thousand ways, church. I've tried them all. You can run a hundred directions, but God is faithful and he's trying to teach us something. So the call that I want to call you to, a call of faith that will be reckoned to you as righteousness, is a call of a church to wait on the Lord. I don't know what God's promising you. Honestly, I don't even know what He's promised me sometimes. There have been times I've thought I've heard Him. Sometimes I've been misguided in that hearing. Many things I'm asking presently. What do you have me for? What is your plan? What is your goal, Lord? I must be patient. I must wait on the Lord. I must sit down and abide in Him and say, Lord, when you say move, I'll move. When you say it is done, I'll trust that it's done. When you say I already gave you the promise, start being content, I'll be content. But it requires waiting. It requires waiting because Waiting and patience are implicit in faith. Abram and Sarah are just like you and I. And they get the same exact level of problems because of their rushing things. But I would encourage you not to be those people anymore. I would encourage you to continue to walk with God, watching his faithfulness unfold, and know that he will take care of you. Amen.